you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The latest numbers on homelessness here on Oahu are out. Laura Thielen is the executive director of Partners in Care, which conducts the point-in-time count. She just released the numbers within the last hour. The pluses, fewer families and veterans on the street compared to the previous count. But the numbers on Oahu's west side are up slightly. Here's Thielen. We had a slight increase um, of just under 80 individuals to our count, uh, which uh, having anyone experience homelessness is a bad number, even one. But uh, I think our community can be thankful for all the hard work that the providers did uh, and all the money that came in during COVID. Because if you look on the West Coast and most of the mainland, there were significant increases in folks experiencing homelessness. And here on Oahu, we had uh, a, a a smaller number, 4,028 individuals experiencing homelessness uh, during COVID when other regions were seeing large increases in uh, the homeless population. We actually housed more than 1,000 people during the height of COVID, which is a true success. Uh, and it's with the additional funding that came through the CARES Act and the ARPA funds, which were essential. And so during that process, we were able to prove that even during a pandemic, there are ways to get people into housing, and that is the safest way to keep our community as safe as possible from health crises and other issues associated with homelessness. And in your survey, did it reveal new numbers in particular areas? Yes. So we uh, have seven different regions on the island of Oahu. And for each region, we have a lead agency. And those could be like Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center, Achieve Zero, IHS, and KWO, Keala West Oahu. And within those regions, we saw the most significant increase in the Waianae area. We saw just over 200 additional individuals counted this year compared to the last year. So that was a significant jump from 18% of the total point-in-time count population to 27. And what about available beds? You know, spaces in shelters. Yes. So over the last couple of years, we have seen a trend going down in the number of units that are available within our emergency shelters, transitional shelters. And that's partly due to COVID restrictions, but it's also due to some programs going offline and some programs coming on, but not enough. So we have seen a, a slow decrease over the last three years of shelter availability. Of the numbers on the on the Waianae Coast breakdown, males, females? We have it within our report, a breakdown for each region. And so for that region, we had 46% of the population we counted in Waianae, uh, the Waianae area, are considered chronically homeless, which means that they've been homeless for a significant amount of time and have at least one disabling condition. Uh, and the other thing that we saw that is that the average age on the west uh, side was 41, which is slightly lower than we're used to seeing uh, in any area, but especially in that area. Most of the other districts were really trending in the same way. Some things that we want to do a deeper dive on and figure out is uh, we do a heat map. Uh, so our entire point in time count is done on an app, which allows us to geolocate every single interview that we do or any observations that we have during the point in time count. And what we have noticed and we want to look at a little bit deeper is while there were was a significant decrease in neighborhoods within the regions, such as Waikiki and downtown. Uh, over the last year and a half, two years, uh, a significant program that may have led to that is the Safe and Sound in Waikiki project and the Weed and Seed project in the downtown area. So uh, just anecdotally through our heat map, we can see that those specific areas within the regions uh, had a decrease, but right out Outside of those neighborhoods, there was a slight increase. So we want to see, you know, are those the same people that may have been removed from those areas because they were cited for weed and seed or safe and sound? And if that's the case, what do we need to do about that? Because what we're really geared for and what we really want to accomplish is ending homelessness for folks, not just moving them out of areas and creating more problems for the neighboring areas. 
And that has been one, I think, criticism I know that the cities face, right, it, when they do the sweeps. Uh, I mean, they have to do those because, you know, it becomes a health issue, mm-hmm. uh, a safety issue a lot of times for, um, the, the let's say, the motorists in the area where they may have set up, uh, set up encampments. But you want to be able to reach the people yes. and not disrupt them and then have to go find them and then get, you know, a bad count. Yes, and what we're really looking at and what we see across the board when we look at point-in-time information is we've seen a significant decrease in veteran homelessness over the last about five, six years. And we can point to a couple of initiatives that were focused primarily on veterans as being part of that solution of decreasing the number of veterans out on our streets. The mayor's challenge on homelessness and other other types of funding that have come to us have allowed us to really focus on that group. And then we see the significant decrease. We saw the same decrease in families over the last several years. And that was, I think, in part because of a couple of projects that that were focused on getting any families with young children off of the streets. And then there's more of an opportunity when they're in shelters or go straight to housing to keep them in housing. So we have seen a slight increase in families uh, during this point in time count. And so now we're thinking, okay, now we've got to make sure that we keep those programs that were very successful over the last couple of years. We've got to figure out how to keep those going with also being able to provide services to the rest of the homeless population. And, you know, we know we're hearing more about the Kahales and, and mm-hmm. you know, trying to get more of those people in tiny homes or in treatment programs, you know, where the, the need is great. But is there anything, I don't know, that you want to share just coming off the legislative session, you know, maybe how well some of the bills or the programs mm-hmm. fare? Yeah, so uh, we were heavily involved in the legislation this year. We were actually following more than 100 bills. At the end of the of the legislature, we didn't see as much success as we were hoping for. Uh, we are still uh, figuring out in the budget what is going for what. Uh, there has been, uh, you know, the renewal of the grants for the Ohana zones, which uh, some of that includes Kauhales. We have also seen some significant funding going towards the creation of affordable housing, which is wonderful. None of it is enough to get us completely out of this issue of homelessness, but it's a it's a stride in the right direction. In regards to Kauhales, I think that really has proven to be something that we thought outside of the box on, and we really want to give people their personal space, and it seems like when folks have the uh, their own key for their own door, whether it's in uh, a unit complex or in a Kauhale, they have a little bit more sense of security and privacy, and they tend to be more successful moving on from that point to possibly another uh, housing situation. So I think it's important for us to really continue thinking outside of the box, but more importantly than that even is to make sure that when there's successful programs, that we're fully funding them so that they can be successful for the long term and making sure that those structures that are being built will accommodate folks for the long term. Kauhales, they are considered permanent housing, and so making sure that the folks that move into those units are appropriately housed, and if they need assistance beyond that, making sure that we have those wraparound services for them. Anything that you're disappointed, maybe that didn't pass? We've had have some discrimination legislation that was going through that did not pass, and that included discrimination against the types of sources of income that individuals have to put towards housing. We really want to see our landlords across the islands open up their doors to folks that uh, receive Section 8 and other types of subsidies. Uh, and for landlords, we understand that they're taking a risk by taking in folks who are previously homeless and maybe don't know how to be the best of tenants, we want to partner with those landlords so that we can actually not only assist the clients, but also assist the landlords and make sure that they are part of the partnership and that they know what their resources might be. Uh, There was some funding put towards mitigation funds, meaning that landlords could get some funding for damage uh, caused to their unit. Uh, And we want to encourage that because we do know 
it's an asset for that landlord. So we really want to partner. So that was some of the things that we were disappointed that didn't pass, but we're going to keep on going with it and we're going to keep on working with landlords across our islands. You know, this report is a little bit different than other reports that we've done in the past for the point in time count. For this report, we actually included information of what happens and how many people enter the homeless service system during the course of a year. And we had over 13,000 individuals come through and get some type of housing or homelessness service over the course of the last year from January 2022 to January 2023. In the past, the point in time count has really been questioned because it's only a one-day count. It does not count every single person who is experiencing homelessness. It's our best efforts to do that, and it is the best way to really get as much information from individuals as possible because there's more than 30 questions on our survey, and thankfully this year, more than half of our count were actually uh, completed the full survey, but we also want to balance that with the reality of what happened within the service system over the course of the year. So when you're seeing there's 13,000 people who have gotten services over the course of the year, that that kind of balances out and says, okay, there's 4,000 on this one day. But at any given time, there could be 5, 6, 10,000. We've been hearing from Laura Thielen, head of Partners in Care, which has just released its point-in-time count of our homeless population based on a one-night survey earlier this year. Our reality check today focuses on Skyline. That's what the city is calling the elevated rail line. Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri joins us today. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Yeah, so big announcement. The mayor, Lori Kaikina, we had the city council chair, you know, just talking about what the transition is going to be like. That's right. So yesterday we had a whole gaggle of elected leaders and city transit leaders all at the Halava Rail Station right across from Aloha Stadium. And they were there to officially announce that they are going to, in fact, open the rail line for limited passenger service, you know, partial service along the first 11 miles or so, starting on June 30th. It's going to start at 2 p.m., what they're saying, and I'm sure they're going to have all sorts of fanfare as that rolls out. Yes, lots of hoopla because we've been waiting a long time and we're paying a a fine price for this training. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, city leaders predating Mayor Blangiardi, going back to the days with Mayor Caldwell and probably even before then, I mean, People have been waiting. They really wanted to get residents on the train so that, frankly, their experience of our local rail project is more than just the cost overruns and the schedule delays and all of the stumbling blocks that have happened and that have, frankly, kind of come to define this project, but to really change the narrative and say, well, here's what it's going to be. And and sure, right now it's only running from East Kapolei to Aloha Stadium or the stadium site. But you can get a sense of what the potential will be when we start opening lines further down, that the next opening should be in a couple of years or so, uh, all the way to Middle Street, and that will include the airport. And then, of course, the, the big target is to get it through downtown and now into Kaka'ako. But to do that, the city is going to pay $94 million in O&M for the first year. And of course, those costs are only expected to climb. So it is a bit of a hefty price tag to help kind of change the narrative and help with public perception. Right. And O&M operating and maintenance? Yeah, operations and maintenance. So Hitachi Rail is the company that will be operating the rail line. It's 
to start, and about $54 million of that $94 million is going to Hitachi. The rest is things like electricity and security and all, all sorts of other peripheral costs that go into the operations and maintenance. It is a milestone. We have been waiting so long, but you know, critics are saying, "Yeah, it's the you know train to nowhere." And this first stop with the stadium, you know, we don't have a stadium there, uh, so you can't even use it to go to the games, right? Which is a part of the thinking that that that's why that was going to be such a draw. Uh, but you know, obviously, it is what it is. And I know that uh, Roger Morton and John Nucci were you know trying to talk up the connectivity that they're going to be, you know, changing the routes for the bus so that people can hopefully try it out and hopefully it gets them to where they need to go. If you happen to be along that first, what, 10, 11 miles. That's right. Sort of the, you know, the rebuttal to the train to nowhere, at least the the explanation that's coming out now is there are actually a lot of commuters who could benefit that are heading into Pearl Harbor, the, the shipyard there. There's apparently a major dry dock construction project that's gearing up and that this, you know, will time for for so many workers to head down there and joint base Pearl Harbor Hickam. So if you live farther points west and, you know, commute into Pearl Harbor, uh, that it will be useful. And furthermore, they're saying if you can get to the line on, on the, you know, on either side, it represents a reliable 21-minute commute from East Kapolei to Aloha Stadium. You know, you're not going to have to have the, the X factor and the variable of how is the H1 today? Am I sitting in traffic for an hour or is it surprisingly a breeze at 20 minutes? You're going to have a reliable ride, at least for that little portion. And what they're saying is they're going to run express buses at the end of Aloha Stadium, at the, the Halava Station, every 10 minutes or so to complement the trains that are arriving at the end of the line there every 10 minutes or so. Yeah, well, it's still a big uphill climb to convince, you know, naysayers that it's going to pencil out. You know, people are worried about, okay, where am I going to park my car? How am I going to get to the station? Right. And how's this going to work? But, you know, the city's saying, hey, we want to try and launch this and provide free rides for a few days during the 4th of July weekend and talk it up, I guess, and see how it goes. That's right. There are still a lot of devils in the details as to how this works, both in terms of the operations, we'll see how smoothly that goes, but also, as you said, getting to and from, you know, that the the first mile and the last mile, as they they say in the, you know, the transit world of how easy is it going to be to access uh, even for those first 10 miles. We'll see. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so, so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. We've been talking to Civil Beat's Marcel Henri. Check out his story at civilbeat.org. Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Thies, author of Notes on Complexity. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about human existence in a conscious and alive universe. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pineapple Tweed Public Relations and Marketing, believing in the value of creating a more informed public, a supporter of the reporting, news coverage, and storytelling heard daily on HPR. Hani Dijon is a legendary DJ, bringing unique beats to Beyonce tracks and clubs around the world. But she still feels like house music is misunderstood. For a long time, house music was considered white music. Right. It's been so far removed from yeah. the origins that a lot of Black people even think house music is white. Honey Dijon on House and History. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Come.
Kamehameha Schools will hold its commencement ceremonies at the end of the month. But 106 of their high schoolers have already earned a two-year college associate's degree. It's thanks to a program that's been around in our private and public schools for years, but the numbers this year are through the roof. The students received their college diplomas from Hawaii Pacific University. We talked to HPU President John Gotanda about what this means. We last connected when the university's enrollment was in record territory at the beginning of the pandemic. We had to rent six floors of a hotel in order to house our students. And post-COVID, enrollment increase has continued. So we are now four straight years of year-over-year enrollment increases. So tell us about the graduation rates for this year? Oh, this year we had 560 students graduating in the spring. We had about 300 or so graduate in the fall. And out of that, we're really excited because out of the 560 students, over 100 were high school students that are enrolled in our dual credit program. So they will receive both their undergraduate as well as their associate's degree, their college degree at the same time. I mean, that's really remarkable. I did see something uh, this week, you know, where I think they had, oh gosh, I'm trying to think, eight seniors at Farrington do something similar with uh, the community colleges. Mm -hmm. And that's just outstanding, you know, because these are highly motivated students, you know, working on time management. But the numbers that you shared, I mean, that's, what, 100 from Kamehameha schools? Right, over 100 from Kamehameha schools, which, as far as we know, there's no other, other school in the state that has come even close to graduating 100 students while in high school receiving their associate's degree. And so what does that mean as a community, you know, the kinds of things that we can be doing for our young people? Oh, it's it. this is life-changing for their families. In fact, I was invited up to Kamehameha Schools afterward for a celebration that they held for their families. And, and hearing the stories and the testimonials from the students that were participating in the program, it is really life-changing for their for them and for their families because it cuts two years off to complete a bachelor's degree if they so wish to do so. But yet they are graduating with a college degree at the same time that they graduate from high school, which is just incredible. I mean, it cuts the time and the cost, but also gives them the degree, too. And so with this associate's degree, I mean, if the folks then want to continue on there at HPU to get the four years, I mean, that's possible or go somewhere else? That's correct. And and we have about 40 students continuing on to complete their BAs with us. And so we're thrilled to be having them. And then do we have a sense as to what areas uh, seem to be drawing these students? The, the associate's degree right now is a general associate's degree. So it basically is a lot of the core type of courses. But we are looking at starting in the coming years concentrations in certain areas. For example, cybersecurity is one, and associates in science is another. Uh, particularly for those who want to go on for degrees like engineering or you know marine biology is really one that's it's really popular at, at Hawaii Pacific University or if they want to go on for a medical degree you know the associates of science is actually very useful to start with and we're also looking at putting together a construction management concentration too it gives them an immediate leg up for those who want to go on for their bachelor's degree it cuts off time and costs in half you know, potentially in half at, at that point. And for those who don't, they graduate at that point with a college degree. And down the line, we're going to add on these concentrations so they can really hit the ground running. How do you explain the numbers? I mean, the fact that, you know, we've had more than 100 students sign up for this program. They're obviously very motivated students. But I don't know. Did you ever do a lot of arm twisting? I don't know. Well, we have terrific partners at, at Kamehameha Schools. And a shout out really to Taryn Chun, the head of schools, and his his people that have done an incredible job, just a really remarkable job talking with their students, encouraging them, and, and helping really put together this program and making it work. In fact, we have nearly a 1,000 students at Kamehameha in this program year-round. There are a number of students working toward, as, as you see, the associate's degree, but they can also just earn college credit while they're in high school, which, again, is incredibly valuable because, again, it reduces the time and the costs. But also studies show that, that if high school students take just six credits 
of college work, their chances of going on to college at that point almost doubles. It, it is incredible how much that, that increase happens. And, and so they've been encouraging students to, to take these courses, and, and it's really, I think, helped them prepare for college and also reduce the time and the cost of college. And in a quarter of their, just about well, about a fifth of their class is going to graduate in the coming weeks with their high school diplomas, but also already having received their associate's degree, which I think is remarkable. It is remarkable. I mean, I, I don't know that I could have done that at that age. But what does this mean? Because it's Kamehameha schools, and we're talking Native Hawaiian students, HPU has, I think, recently uh, been awarded some grants, you know, I think over at the Oceanic Institute, right? You've got programs that are going with a cultural component, which has just you know been really, I think, very valuable to the community you know, and the university. But what do you think this says about the direction that HPU is going? I think H- HPU is a minority-serving institution. We have actually one of the most diverse student bodies in the country. In fact, it's part of the learning experience at HPU is really made us unique to have this kind of diversity in our student body. Because learning at HBU doesn't only happen inside of the classroom, it happens outside of the classroom as well. And students learn from each other at HBU. So having this sort of really diverse student body actually improves, in our view, the, the learning environment and makes it really unique and special. And, and having this program in particular, I think, is part of our mission to serve the community overall and and our Native Hawaiian community. And then uh, I know that uh, HPU uh, did attract a large number of um, students from from Europe, you know, from really all over the world. Um, How are our numbers, you know, with COVID and and post-COVID? Well, the number in, in COVID, we did see a drop in international students. They couldn't get here. But at the same time, what we've seen post covid is the numbers have gone back up. Now the mix though has has changed because you know Japan hasn't had, didn't fully reopen until till recently and and China was a bit behind too in that. But yet what we saw was there was real large demand particularly from Scandinavia where we've traditionally pulled from. So, you know, post COVID we saw over 100 students from Denmark alone and we've seen you know, almost the same amount come from Norway. So there is a large influx then of students, international students coming back. Now that's being tempered slightly by sort of a, a very strong dollar and high interest rates. Uh, and also the global economy is, is playing into that. But at the same time, we still have a very strong international population. And then you mentioned at the start of this uh, conversation that you had to rent out hotel floors. What's the situation with boarding at this point? What's the snapshot? Well, we, we've been able, fortunately, through various partnerships with people in the local community to be able to house our students. You know, we have 370 units at Aloha Tower. We are still leasing the, the facility on the Hawaii Low Campus, which has about 200 or so beds. And in the community itself, we, we have recently used you know, various different facilities to house about 200 more students. And so we're able to cobble together space for students, but housing, of course, you know, is the number one, I think, challenge in Hawaii, an issue in Hawaii, and and it is a real issue for our students, too. And then how's the Aloha Tower uh, development working out there? A rail is going to come down there at some point, but how does that dovetail into the university's plans? Well, rail is stopping literally in front of the Aloha Tower Marketplace campus, and that is our our really our, our student life hub. Where, where we have the 370 students living there, but we also have a mix of retail and university space below. For example, we have a learning commons and annex of the library there. We have our Pier 9 by Sam Choi, where a student dining facility that literally is on the water. And, and Sam was actually there the other day, and, you know, working on what, what the menu is for the coming year for the students. It's the only student dining facility we know of <laughs> with a James Beard award-winning That's chef. Awesome. You know, <laughs> helping design the food. And we also have an esports uh, center there. Hawaii's premier sort of esports center is, is located there, too. So it, it's been a wonderful facility for us. And rail stopping there, I think, is really going to open up 
sort of access for our students and the community, too. You mentioned the uh, campus uh, on the windward side, and I'm trying to recall now because you're pulling back from that footprint, right? That's right. We, yeah. we sold that campus a number of years ago uh, to Castle Adventist uh, Health, and, and they've leased it back to us, and we are still have our science labs our, and also dorms out there. And, and we've been fortunate to work with Adventists on that and, and really has been just a great partner with us. It's been a, a great facility for us, but, you know, we are really headquartered and centered now in, in downtown Honolulu. Okay, so just a matter of whenever you can pull back from that. Well, completely. we're building science labs in, in downtown Honolulu, and we're looking probably to complete the labs in the next year or so, and then we, we will move the operations completely off of once the science labs are completed then we'll move those those operations off of our high low campus. Where are those labs springing up? It's, it's going to be on Fort Street and really it's, it's going to provide I think over twice as much lab space than we currently have and it's going to be I think a wonderful facility for our students. That was part of a conversation we had with HPU President John Gotanda, who has been at the helm of the university for the last seven years, as it is seeing record enrollment numbers. That that includes the recent graduation of 106 students from Kamehameha schools who have earned a college associate's degree while working on their high school diploma. The dual degree program at HPU also includes students at Marinol and Hanalani schools. Rotuma is an island in the South Pacific that shares political and cultural connections with the island of Fiji. And this week, it uh, celebrates Rotuma Language Week. John Taukeve is a native of the island and a graduate student in the Pacific Island Studies uh, Department at the University of Hawaii. As part of an oral history project, Taukeve recently sat down with UH professor uh, Vilsoni uh, Heroniko, uh, who is also from Rotuma, and who teaches at the School of Cinematic Arts. Here's a part of that interview where they talk about storytelling and special moments growing up on the remote Pacific Island. My father, who was a great storyteller, tell us the so-called, you know, Hanuchu, the mystery mm. legends of Rotuma. And those stories really fired my imagination and sustained me in that I was able to travel through my mind beyond the physical confines of the island, which, as you know, is only about nine months by two. But Mm. through my imagination, I could be all over the the world. He shares an example of this living knowledge and how it was used in his daily life in the moments of catching small hermit crabs to use as bait when going out fishing. By singing this chant, the crab would come out and they would use it as bait. Living knowledge like this is in many ways for oral history in the Pacific important in knowing how they live. This knowledge can and must be preserved and its credibility cannot be questioned because of lived experiences and proof from knowledge holders like Dr. Heronico in this case. And you know, you probably know the thing about the hermit crab. You know, mm. we, we use it for fishing in Rotunda as bait. And to get it out as a kid, we'd go looking for the fico, and when we find them, we'd hold it, and then we would sing to the fico. We would say, Fico, oh, oh, Rita, la sur, ma se, tala, hua, yo, te, aunga, o, te, aunga, fico, oh, oh, Rita, la sur. And you sing like that, and then it slowly comes out of the shell, mm. and you grab it. <laughs> <laughs> pull it right out, and you turn it out, and you put it at the end of your fishing hook, and you throw it, to the fish, and then you pull the fish. So, yeah. I mean, is that amazing to get the yeah. bait? You sing to the to the hermit crab, and it comes out and says, "Here I am, use me." In exploring research methodologies and indigenous epistemologies, practices and activities around research must be centered and directly engaged with the community. 
take oral history, for instance, being a practice-based research that has been reduced for a long time as an unreliable source of knowledge and information, reduced to fantasy and myth. Maori scholar Nepia Mahuika helped change the narrative in noting its worth, especially researching oceanic communities and their ways of being, their histories, and their existence. These indigenous methods are powerful and must not be ignored as they carry a community's identity with them. And because of this, oral history has become increasingly more influential and mandatory when carrying out research. Mahuika expresses the importance of oral history in the forms of songs, chants, dance, poetry, and storytelling that these performances tell the histories of Maoris and their ancestors through living experiences of knowledge that unravel multiple layers of reflected customs, protocols, genealogy, and kinship. Maitalano with Dr. Hereniko openly expresses this in his lived experiences in Rutuma with New. The importance of the coconut of new, which is what we call the coconut, uh, to the Rutuman people. As a, as the youngest of eleven, I mentioned that often we didn't have enough food, so I would go to the bush looking for coconuts to eat, and the hara, you know, the 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 coconut seedling. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I would go with my machete and and find the hara and cut them open and and sit down and have my meal there. Uh, and of course, there's always the coconut water uh, and the coconut flesh. And without the coconut tree, I probably would have died. You know, so um, I would always, you know, I'm always uh, grateful uh, to Neil for uh, sustaining me physically. The stories sustain me uh, in terms of my soul, my imagination, my aspirations and uh, my uh, desire to get out of Rotuma and experience the, the world that I w- I've been told about, you know, in stories, uh, and also in the books that um, I was reading. This knowledge is also evident in his poem that he shares with me during the Talanoa, and is also interweaved within the editor's note for the journal, The Contemporary Pacific, in its 34th volume. When I'm old and drooping, don't walk by without saying hello to me. You drank from me. You ate my flesh too. My leaves gave you shelter. Remember? So take a part of me and make me a part of you. Then feel me. Caress me like you've never done before. Be gentle with me. Be patient too. And together, you and I will give birth to new creations. Oceanic knowledge is important, and sharing that knowledge through different art forms is even more critical for Pacific Island studies and oral history. Despite that, for many years, academia has viewed indigenous knowledge in a way that has been treated separately, objectively, and in a you-versus-us mannerism in the pursuit of knowledge. It is my hope that through my research and this Talano with Dr. Harry Nicol, I can provide an understanding of how oceanic and Rutuman knowledge can further enhance what Pacific Island studies and oral history will look like in the future. That was an excerpt of an oral history project by UH graduate student John Taukeve and UH professor Vilsone Heronico. Both hail from the South Pacific island of Rotuma. We'll share links on our website as we tip our hats to Rotuma Language Week and AAPI Heritage Month. Today on The Daily, federal prosecutors brought 13 felony charges against Republican Congressman George Santos. Why it might not have an immediate effect on his term in Congress. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily 
from the New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. On the next Fresh Air, we talk with the New York Times' Alan Foyer about the conviction of leaders of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers on charges of seditious conspiracy and what that means for ongoing January 6th-related inquiries, including investigations into Donald Trump. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Local grocery chain Foodland is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. The first location was opened in May of 1948 in Oahu's Market City Shopping Center by the Sullivan family. It was the first supermarket to open in Hawaii and is the only locally owned statewide grocery store in Hawaii. Today it has 31 stores and employs nearly 3,500 people. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Foodland Chair and CEO uh, Janai Wall to reflect on the business started by her parents and grandparents. What do you think they would say if someone traveled back in time to 1948 and told them they would still be going strong in 2023? Well, I think they would say, really? And I think that it would have been a dream of theirs that the business would continue all these years. I imagine my mother clapping her hands and saying, oh, that's so exciting, makes me so proud. They were so proud of opening Hawaii's first supermarket, and they would tell us the story over and over again about how they were able to get the location. And then, you know, on the first day, they didn't know what to expect. There was a huge crowd of people and they were so busy, they had to close the doors periodically to restock the shelves. And, you know, when I think about them seeing Foodland today, I think they would be amazed that so many things have changed in the grocery store, but I hope they'd be happy to see that a lot of things that were important to them have stayed the same. You had mentioned a little bit earlier that there has been some big changes in the industry in the last 75 years. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen? Well, it's funny, you know, I've talked to people recently that have confessed to me that their first job was at Foodland. And what they remember is that, you know, you had to memorize prices and you had to memorize what was on ad and all these things, which, of course, we don't have to do today because we have scanning and it's so much easier for the cashiers. We can change prices more readily. I think another big change to me is prepared food. And so we didn't sell poke then. It's a big thing for us. Salt and vinegar wings are really popular at Foodland. And while my father had, even from the earliest days, had a central kitchen, which we have today, I think the things they were making were probably different than what we offer in our stores today. More customers, I think, than ever before are too busy or don't have the same interest in cooking as they did perhaps in my parents' and grandparents' generation. So we've had to adjust to ensure that we continue to meet their needs. And you're running a company, you have to be adaptable, adjustable. And I know your your company has seen its share of good times, its share of hard times. You're celebrating this milestone at a time where we're seeing the lingering effects of the pandemic drive up the cost of groceries. Right. I, I know that we've seen prices come down a little bit, but how does Foodland find that balance between prices that are affordable and continuing to run a profitable business? You know, I think it's it's been a challenge for not only supermarkets, but 
retailers in general across the country, and many of us are seeing margin compression like we haven't seen in a long time. You know, our costs from eggs to a whole lot of other things have gone through the roof, and we are trying to balance being able to, you know, we can't lose money, of course, on on everything we're selling if we don't take prices up, but we're trying to balance that so that we can still serve the community in a way that is fair to them. How much of the balance is also local, selling local products? How does being local or promoting local, how does that factor into the business model? So I think local is important in many ways. The product that we get from local farmers is so much fresher. The quality is great. Sometimes it's a little more expensive. Sometimes it's not. It it just depends. But we believe it's really important to support other local businesses and vendors. And what's really exciting is how many options there are now to buy local. I think there are a lot more today than there have been in the past in every area of the store. For a long time, it was farmers and produce, but now we're seeing it in other places. And I think that's great for our customers. I think it's really great for Hawaii, too. And kind of looking ahead to the future, the short-term future, With the downtown Honolulu Walmart closing, does Foodland see an opportunity to step in and be the grocery store for the downtown community? You know, we haven't thought about downtown as we've looked at it previously. I think one of the hard things is that so many of the people that work there are, you know, you have to do business five days a week, which Mm -hmm. is a little bit challenging for us because the weekends there are fewer people there. I think parking is a big, big issue for us. And we know that the stores where our parking is not as accessible is a challenge as well. And, you know, at this point, I would say we have our hands full managing the locations we have. And you may know we opened several during the pandemic. And so we're adjusting and digesting those because the startup cost for a new store and ramping up is always challenging. We're always looking for new locations where it makes sense for us and makes sense for the community. And at the same time, we also this year really want to spend some time reinvesting in our older stores because some of them have, you know, gotten a little tired over time and we want to make sure we update them and give them a fresh new look. And then looking ahead to the long-term future, what kind of plans does Foodland have for the next 25 years? What might we see at Foodland's 100th birthday? (laughs) That's a good question. And you know what I hope you will see is that you come to a store where you feel welcome, that you can find the things you want. I can't predict what those things will be, but my sense is that we'll have more prepared food than we do now. I hope we have more local offerings than we do now because I hope that there will be more and more suppliers and vendors coming right out of Hawaii. But I hope you'll also feel like it was the food line you grew up with, that this is a place you'd like to come to find things that reflect Hawaii and the taste we have in Hawaii very well, and that you feel like, oh, you're shopping with friends and family because our employees treat you with aloha. As a business that was started locally and continues to be locally owned, What are a couple of the most important lessons that Foodland has learned over the last 75 years that other local businesses could learn from? Well, I think one thing is that you have to be good at what you do. You can't count on the fact that people 
or you shouldn't count on the fact that people are just going to shop with you because you're local. That's not enough. I think you have to listen to your customers. You have to respond to what they want. You have to be innovative and working your hardest to be a place that uh, they want to visit and they want to shop and where they can meet their needs. I think the other thing is that we have learned that there are unique things about being local that we are able to celebrate and honor in our stores. We think better than other people and that that's an advantage for us. And so it's about celebrating our local roots, but also honoring our customers by finding new ways to serve them better and bring exciting new products to them. Can you share a few cool things that you're doing for the 75th anniversary celebration? Oh, yes. We actually, as part of our anniversary celebration, we are working with several local vendors and they have come up with Foodland Anniversary products. So you were talking about Sensei Farms from Lanai has come up with a Maika'i greens mix. Special just for Foodland Sun Noodle came up with a dry min just for Foodland. And Uncle's Ice Cream is uh, another one that we all just tried recently. And it's a Foodland Anniversary lychee ice cream with chocolate, chocolate chip cookie on the outside. And, you know, we have more coming, including, well, I'll let you be surprised, but there are some fun ones coming, including our first ever beer. Thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed talking to you. You're you're a lot of fun to talk to. Oh, thank (laughs) you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was Foodland's Chief Executive Officer, Janai Wall, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about some of the new things the supermarket is rolling out to celebrate its 75th year in business. Well, that's it for us today. Up tomorrow, we've got a Hanaho show on tap. Got questions about something you heard on our show? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you've heard, find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the Conversation 